For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, understanding a new state law that may provide justice for greater numbers of indigenous women and girls. How the phrase, never again, is taking on a wider meaning for victims of discrimination. And reaction to the Trump administration's changes to the Endangered Species Act. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In spring of this year, Arizona lawmakers passed a law that would require the state to collect more data on violence against indigenous women and girls. Arizona has the third highest number of missing and murdered indigenous females in the nation. This month, Governor Doug Ducey held a public signing of HB 2570 at the Capitol, and AZPM reporter Emma Gibson spoke to several of the women in attendance who had advocated for the law. One woman shares details of an experience that may not be appropriate for all listeners. As Governor Doug Ducey performed a ceremonial signing of the new law, the families of Native American women and girls who have been killed or gone missing stood behind him. While the event was a celebration, many in the crowd began to cry. For Elaine Gregg and many others there that day, it means families affected by the crisis will no longer be overlooked by state officials. Greg, who is Thon Otham, Akmal Otham, and N.U. Peck, was one of the many who pushed state officials to pass this law. She says she did it for her daughter, Rhea Dene Almeida. Rhea was a seven-year-old who liked to go to the pool and play on her tire swing in Ajo until 2009 when she was raped and murdered. That day, it was um, it was a warm summer day. She was really a tomboy, so she was more of an outside person, which we all loved and adored about her. She was wanting to go to her friend's house who lived down the street, so this was the only time I had really allowed her to go by herself. I watched her cross the busy road. That was my last time I seen her. She went to visit a friend. The friend wasn't there, but his older brother was there. Greg has shared this story with the media and small groups who want to learn more about violence against indigenous women and girls, and with members of Arizona's Senate. Before the governor signed the law, Greg testified in favor of the bill at the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. My daughter Rhea was brutally raped and slain by our neighbor. He was prosecuted and would be serving a lifelong sentence with no chance of parole. Rhea's existence was ripped away from me in the most violent way a mother could ever imagine. One reason Greg supports this law is because not all law enforcement agencies know how many indigenous women and girls are missing or have been murdered in their jurisdiction. It's a crisis that the bill's sponsor, State Representative Jennifer Germain, says is underreported 
She says there's a lack of communication between all jurisdictions in the state. When somebody steps off of tribal land, they're in a different jurisdiction. When you're on tribal land, you're in a possibility of four different jurisdictions. So we're looking at where the jurisdictions cross to see if we can stop people from going missing and stop cases from going cold. According to the Urban Indian Health Institute, Arizona has the third highest number of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the country. With 54 cases from Flagstaff, Phoenix, Tempe, and Tucson. These cases were among the hundreds the Institute identified between 1943 and 2018. Again, Germain says that figure is likely lower than reality. We think that the problem is much higher in the state of Arizona. The purpose and the goal of the task force is to get to better numbers for the state of Arizona so that we can start attacking the root cause of the problem and putting resources in those areas. Greg agrees with Jermaine and says she hopes Arizonans will soon recognize the extent of this issue. She says she hopes lawmakers will soon provide social services to tribal communities to break cycles of trauma. I think once the data is gathered, then hopefully that will be enough for our elected officials to really put those kinds of programs and supports on our tribal community and to really make our community feel like they can speak up. While the governor celebrates the potential this law will have, Greg reflects on why it's needed. HB 2570, the law of the land. I feel, you know, it brings back that sadness, but I feel really uplifted and hopeful. I'm feeling really good. Today's a good day. The law requires the state to form a committee to collect the data it will spend the next year collecting information from federal, state, county, local, and tribal law enforcement agencies across Arizona. Jermaine says it will help state lawmakers figure out how to stem the problem. Our success will be measured through the next couple cycles through the legislature to see what we can get passed to specifically address this problem in Arizona. Jermaine says the study committee is still being formed and will begin meeting later this month. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Emma Gibson. You can find more on this story, including video from Arizona 360, on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Never again is a phrase that appears in the contemporaneous writings of people during the Holocaust. In the decades since, those words have been used as a tool to stir political action against discrimination and violence on behalf of Jewish people and others. Earlier this month, a local opinion piece in the Arizona Daily Star stated, Now is the time for all of us to say, Never again, para nadie. Those words were from Brian Davis, the executive director of the Jewish History Museum and the Holocaust History Center in Tucson. I spoke with him about his intent. I've been inspired over the course of the summer by this project to activate the phrase never again, which has for decades been a sort of centerpiece of Holocaust memory, the vocabulary of that memory. 
but it's also sadly been um, something that's often expressed in the aftermath of an atrocity. So when it's too late for intervention or resistance, the phrase is uh, then deployed. And this summer, mostly younger Jewish activists have taken that phrase and activated it in a way that I've never seen before. Um, they've used it as a tool to inspire others to protest and resist the um, oppression that's happening for migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, and other undocumented folks across the country. You use the word activate. How do you think that this will activate a larger, more global perspective on Never Again? A couple of things. One is they sort of clarified the message of Never Again by adding some phrases like Never Again is now, Never Again para nadie. Um, so it's both that it, it is now, it's urgent. We don't have to wait until atrocities reach the scale of the Holocaust in order for there to be an intervention. So these Jewish people across the country are basically saying, we know where we're headed here. The writing's on the wall. We've seen where this goes historically, and we're not waiting to find out where it goes. We know where it's headed. So never again is now. There's a real urgency. And the piece about never again para nadie means this doesn't only apply to Jews protecting ourselves from future harm. Um, we're here to protect any sort of vulnerable people. It's part of Jewish ethics. It's in our sacred text. It's also deeply imbued within Holocaust memory, not to stand idly by while anyone suffers. Brian, do you think that there is a difference in the way that Jewish children are brought up understanding and being educated about the Holocaust? And what is the real value of that? So for so many contemporary American Jews, we've grown up not only with a sort of one-off Holocaust studies unit in a public school, it's really deeply inculcated for those who go to Sunday school, are active in a congregation. It's such a central piece of Jewish thought in the post-war era. And I think it's just the repetition of that language and the reflection that, that's happening. This summer is the first time I've seen that sort of inculcation translated into action that's taken on the behalf of others for protection as an intervention and as an act of protest. If growing up with an education that includes more acknowledgement and deeper historical context for the Holocaust can have any benefit to a young person, I would think that it would be being able to better judge injustice when you see it and to understand what it can lead to. I think that's true. And again, I would go to those sort of early warning signs around classifying people, marking people with various symbols, having laws that only apply to certain groups of people, dehumanizing through hate speech and other forms of propaganda. One sort of tricky piece about Holocaust education is that some people say, you know, there's no Auschwitz. We don't have to worry. But I really want our visitors to focus on those early warning signs because th this is the moment where intervention can uh, prevent future pain and suffering. One of the core displays in the Holocaust History Center is called Elements of Genocide. Um, that comes from a paper that was written by a former State Department worker named Gregory Stanton, which looks at how societies have historically moved toward mass extermination of a targeted group of people. And those earlier stages in particular have been a real point of emphasis for us to look at closely. Those include classifying groups of people, marking them with symbols, 
and dehumanizing. And in terms of the dehumanization, there's also hate speech, propaganda, and a real kind of us versus them mentality that takes hold uh, across a society. And those are some of the warning signs and the resonances in contemporary American society are startling. With Never Again Paranadier, you mentioned that it's a generation of younger Jewish people who are generally more active with this movement. Can you explain to us why that is? And is there any kind of a cultural pushback, perhaps, from an older generation of Jews who may feel that Never Again symbolizes their tragedy and their struggle and maybe isn't to be shared? This is a real turning point where and I think part of it is the distance maybe from the history. It's the end of the era of the living survivor. And it's a moment for me that I find incredibly inspiring where the language of memory has turned into activism and thousands of people, Jewish people, young Jewish people, as I mentioned, but they're also working with elders and they're working across various communities to take to the streets and protest cruelty that's being enacted upon migrants across the country. Do you think that this is in any way a difficult message to sell to people? What kind of traction do you think this message is going to have, particularly here in the Southern Arizona community? For me, it's been very inspiring. And it's also, I've noticed it's been divisive. It's been divisive across institutions and within the structures of Holocaust Memorial Museums across the country. Whether or not that term can be activated in this way is a real point of contention. In fact, there was a real interesting controversy that erupted over the summer where the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum put out a statement basically saying that they categorically reject any sort of analogizing between Holocaust history and other histories or contemporary events. And in response to that public statement, a list of well over 100 major Holocaust scholars from around the world wrote to the museum to say, we support your work, it's vital work, and at the same time, we're calling on you to retract that statement because it is the very essence of Holocaust studies to learn from this history, to look at similarities across histories so that the public can be warned when future atrocities are developing. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez describes some of the detention centers that are along the border, and many are here in our state, as being like concentration camps, there was a negative reaction to that comment from some quarters and others who said, this is the truth, this is honesty, we need to listen. Um, did you have a reaction to that statement that you can share with us? My reaction was real disappointment when elected officials expressed more moral outrage at the language of Holocaust memory than the abuses that are being enacted upon people in the name of this country. So that's where my reaction was. And that, you know, the statement that came from the representative happened when the real sort of inside view of what's happening inside of these detention centers, the wretched conditions there were first revealed to the public. And that was strong language. And it was really a call for a very strong response. And that has actually taken effect. The Daily Star ran your opinion piece on the second anniversary of the Charlottesville uh, white supremacist rally, and it's available online now for people to read. Through writing this, are you giving your endorsement and your support for Never Again Paranadie? I am decidedly giving that endorsement, and that's why I wrote the piece. As I mentioned, it has been sort of a divisive summer across Holocaust museums, and we're 
taking this position that never again para nadie. It's a bilingual. It resonates in our community for so many reasons. It marks the coming together of Jewish ethics, Holocaust memory, migrants' rights groups across the country. They're now forging these alliances, and I think that's vital. It's part of the community relations work and community building that we see as central to the work of our Jewish History Museum. And Never Again Para Nadie also says that we will not stand idly by while these sorts of abuses are perpetrated against vulnerable people and that it applies to everybody. Brian Davis is the executive director of the Jewish History Museum and the Holocaust History Center on South Stone Avenue in Tucson. The center reopens for its fall season on September 6th. You can find a link to Davis's Arizona Daily Star essay on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Richard Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act into law in 1973. It currently provides protection for 43 animals and 21 plants in Arizona. This month, in the name of modernization, Secretary of the Interior David Bernhardt announced changes to the way that the law will be implemented going forward. These changes weaken many safeguards regarding habitat and make it more difficult to add new species to the list. I asked Randy Seraglio, a conservation advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity, to explain how changes to the Endangered Species Act can be implemented without a vote from Congress. Yeah, the tension here is between uh, the law, the Endangered Species Act, as it was written by Congress and passed uh, almost unanimously in 1973, and uh, the rules and regulations that agencies develop to implement the law. And in this case, uh, what the Trump administration has done is they've come up with a set of rules and regulations that fly in the face of the law and really undermine the intent of the law and, and the intent of the framers of this law to the point where it will be challenged in court. What are some of the key ways that these changes are undermining the act? The Endangered Species Act has all manner of provisions that kick in once a species is determined to be uh, in danger of extinction. And uh, these new rules uh, attack a whole list of of those provisions. For one thing, critical habitat is a very important tool for uh, conserving and recovering species. That's uh, when you make a scientific determination that a certain piece of land is uh, essential to the survival and recovery of that species, and you designate it as a protected critical habitat. And therefore, it raises the bar on on protection for that area. And uh, species are known to be twice as likely to recover when they have critical habitat protection. But... Uh, These new rules say that um, in order for critical habitat to be designated, it has to be occupied. Now, if you limit a species to the tiny piece of of habitat that it still lives on because it's facing extinction, it's not going to get the chance to recover. Uh, You know, it, it needs to recover areas where it used to live. It's not just about increasing the numbers of individuals on the landscape. It's about increasing the places on the landscape where they can be found. And what do you see as some of the biggest repercussions that these changes could have here in Arizona? 
Well, right here in southern Arizona, the jaguar is a is a great species to look at uh, in terms of what the impacts might be. So, so we have about seven hundred fifty thousand acres of critical habitat that was established to protect jaguar recovery in in the United States, and of course. Jaguars are notoriously cryptic, and, and you know the vast majority of them do not walk in front of cameras out in the wild. So uh, to say that you know uh, we're only going to protect land that's occupied is to basically eliminate protections for jaguars, uh, because you know I mean there's very few of them right now in the United States. There's one that we know of. There's probably more than that that we don't know of, you know, but no more than a handful at the most. So. Uh, the other thing that the rules would do is um, if you damage a part of the critical habitat, it won't matter anymore. It, you, you have to damage the entirety of it somehow in order for your activities to be, to be uh, regulated. It's another case where you, know, you could destroy thousands of acres of jaguar habitat, but just because you're not destroying some other acreage over here, they're just going to be able to rubber stamp it and say it's perfectly fine. And at a certain point, uh, the protections cease to have any meaning. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to eliminate, little by little, uh, the places that jaguars need to survive and recover. To take the devil's advocate position, since we have no one else here at the interview, what would you say to the idea that, hey, nature finds a way, Randy, you've seen Jurassic Park. These creatures, if they're meant to survive, if they're viable species and viable strains, they're going to live on, and mankind's not going to impact that. I would say that human activities uh, trump nature, and that pun is intended. You know, th- this is a case where what we're doing to the planet is happening on a geologic scale and within such a rapid time frame that it's absolutely unprecedented. And natural systems are literally breaking down before our eyes. And this is not some prediction of the future. I mean, this is happening now. The United Nations came out with a report a few months ago saying a million species around the globe are facing extinction right now. It's a global mass extinction crisis. And unlike all the ones that happened in the past, uh, you know, this, this one here is number six. Uh, this one is happening on the time scale of a few centuries instead of hundreds of thousands of years. And it's being caused by one specific actor, and that's us. Luckily, we have the science to recognize this, and we have the resources to deal with it and to solve this problem. What we need to do is develop the political will. And you know, I think we have that from the public. The Endangered Species Act is an extremely popular law because it's so effective and because no one wants to see jaguars and polar bears go extinct. But uh, we need our politicians to listen to us. So to those who might say, look, I don't want the jaguars to go extinct, Randy, but at the same time, this is costing us economic opportunity. This is costing us money. We have to put aside lands for these creatures that could be used for other purposes. That would be a benefit to the state economically. You know, this old uh, false dichotomy of uh, economy versus the environment has been tossed around a lot for for decades now, and it's less true now than it's ever been. I mean, if you look at the numbers of what uh, ecotourism and outdoor recreation contribute to our economy, you know, it dwarfs extractive industries like mining, literally dwarfs it by a factor of three, four, five, I mean, we make billions of dollars every year in Arizona off of wide open spaces, beautiful scenic vistas, protected natural areas, and the incredible diversity of wildlife that exists in our state. People come here from all over the world to look at hundreds of different bird species, to go hiking in a mountain range where jaguars walk around. 
there's a lot of reasons for that, but I, I think there's a fundamental reason that speaks to all of us as humans in the 21st century. It's profoundly reassuring, I think, that we know that the wild is still alive, that there's still jaguars out there, that there's still you know this this vast and beautiful and diverse creation around us. And uh, I think it speaks to something primal in us, and that's why people drop a lot of money on it. Randy Seraglio is a conservation advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity. Now, a story that can be classified as from author and University of Arizona creative writing professor Orly Sheehan. This suit. I wore a particular 50s-style suit for almost a year when I was in graduate school. I realized what was going on one afternoon when I was standing in the English department's mailroom. I was a graduate assistant at the time. A man who had the name of another man was in the room with me, getting his mail. Soon he would die. He was loved and appreciated at that school, though he worked for limited and unfair pay, the adjunct scale. I chose to wear the suit because there was a scale, and on one side was success and allure and effect, and on the other side was rumpledness and sorrow and suicide. The suit I wore was my mother's wedding suit. She wore a suit rather than a white dress that singular day. The wedding took place on the Army base in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and I was in her belly already, a firmament of my own, behind the still-flat skirt panel, behind the small bouquet. She also wore a hat. Her mother was there at the wedding, and her mother was also wearing a suit and a hat. The suit I wore for so many days in a row was comprised of a slim skirt and a short boxy jacket with half sleeves and one large mother-of-pearl button at the neck. The important thing about the suit is that it clung and held, trimming you up and making sure you were all in one place, headed in the right direction. You couldn't actually move your arms that much. You couldn't reach too far for things. And of course, you couldn't walk forward with great strides either, but needed to almost shuffle forward. High heels were best, obviously, or little Chinese slippers, created a nice sound with the shuffling, Hard to find the right blouse to go underneath, not too billowy, or the exact right hairstyle, something contrasting but also coiffed. But if you got those things right, you could pretty much remain in neutral and feel satisfied. In those days, I also slept in the suit, in a coffin. Actually, it wasn't a coffin, but a single bed with a thin mattress and very high sides, so I did have to stumble in, straining the suit as I flipped myself into the horizontal resting place. I held my arms to my body. I didn't wear shoes, but kept my shoes, pumps or flats, on the floor at the foot of the bed. Sleep wasn't always as restful as it could have been. That was Aurelie Sheehan reading a story from her collection, Once Into the Night. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. 
The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.